listening to Disrupt Development Storycast on Young Voices for Development in collaboration with Rappout University. In this series, we amplify the voices of young professionals who are following the Advanced Master for International Development at Rutbout University. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Disrupt Development Podcast. I am here today with my fellow change agent, the lovely Delna. Delna is a junior projects and communications officer at the International Institute of Social Studies of Erasmus University, Rotterdam, ISS. At ISS, she works on linking academic research, policy and practice through research communication, uptake and social impact assessment. Coming from a background in journalism, she has experience reporting on migration, social inclusion, communal violence, and gender in India and Bahrain. Welcome, Delna. Thank you for that lovely introduction, Salma. Well, that fabulous voice you just heard right now is my co-host and co-conspirator for today. Salma works as a capacity strengthening officer for courses and projects at the Foundation ICRA, which works to build trust among different actors in agricultural value chains, agricultural research, and educational institutions. With the background in consultancy, international economics, and development, she now works to contribute to the growth of small-scale farmers and farm organizations and agribusinesses. Both of us are pursuing an advanced master's in international development from Radboud University in Nijmegen, the Netherlands. Today, we can't wait to draw up for you some key takeaways from one of the lectures that we had recently as part of our classes. Indeed, we are excited because in this episode, we will be having a talk about the role of religion in international development, including aspects such as the role of faith-based organizations. The discussion is mainly inspired by a lecture delivered by Professor Esther Mombo from the Circle Kenya. We will first briefly give an overview of the history and current realities in religion and its role in development, and then we'll merge this discussion into faith-driven development initiatives. Now, since religion is a broad subject that we could discuss for ages, In this particular conversation, we have decided to look at the role of religion in development through only the lens of power. So we will look at historical phenomena that were directed by the strength of religion and the presence power religion has to foster or hinder international development. We will weigh the power, role and influence that religion holds against current issues in development like poverty, gender, conflict, human rights and sexuality. And that's right. You may be wondering why power or how power. So first, it may be important for us to discuss what we see as the power of religion. I would say I see religion holding different types of power if we are to consider the power typology as discussed by Nye, those of soft power, hard power, and smart power. So to begin with, Soft power includes intangible resources like institutions, ideas, or values. And throughout history, religion can be seen to hold this power on a global level. Not very long ago, for example, in 2017, 
In a survey conducted by Statistics Netherlands, CBS, on social cohesion and well-being, slightly under half, exactly 49% of the adult Dutch population stated that they were religious. This share sure has been decreasing over the years, but religious values and ideals often get entrenched into societies, and that can indeed hold a certain soft power over the culture of a community. Religious faith can also be considered as soft power since it is an intangible resource that can be used to pursue or even drive action. Well, now that you have a significant lowdown of what soft power means, let me explain what hard power is. Now, Nye defined hard power to include tangible resources like force or money. In medieval times, the church possessed enough wealth and power to make laws and influence monarchs. This was demonstrated quite explicitly in religious wars, which were very often triggered by religious agenda. Now, this is described in history as fundamentalism or religious extremism. And this can, of course, be true not just for the Christian faith, but any faith that had a certain power over a significant amount of people. This can be seen as a kind of hard power that was quite crucially present within religion. Smart power, which is the third kind of power, is defined by Nye as the combination of both soft and hard power to achieve beneficial and effective results. In this case, an example could be using religious funds to initiate relief missions while preaching the faith. I would say faith-based organizations are a good result or example of the kind of smart power the religions have access to. And I would totally agree with you, Delna, because I person- personally think faith-based organizations are a good example of smart power for religions as well. I say this because simply put, a faith-based organization is a group of individuals brought together by a common faith or spiritual belief, and it aims to address a certain societal reality. And faith-based organizations have power to drive social change. One, because they are able to get closest to the society compared to any other social impact organization or venture. And two, because in the midst of difficulty or crisis, people tend to rely heavily on faith, be it of the self, just belief in your own capabilities, or just simple hope, or even belief on a higher being. It is also worth mentioning that there is an additional layer of financial power from donations and accumulated wealth for well-established religions, of course. And still, faith-based organizations are stable, enduring, and often the most trusted institutions in the community. They can be identified with almost every cultural and ethnic group and frequently serve as a point where large numbers of people regularly congregate. And finally, people often turn to their faith for strength in times of calamity, illness, and stress, like I said. So when you see it this way, I find faith-based organization an intriguing uh, driver of change in the society and therefore development at large. You're quite right there, Selma. That is quite a fair point that you raise faith-based organizations definitely are quite an intriguing phenomena, especially when you consider the complexities that come along with it. When I think about 
the power that religion holds in our current societies and realities, I keep going back to something interesting that Professor Mombo stated during our lecture. She said that religion and development are partners because of patriarchy, power, and whiteness. Now, how she argued it is that whiteness is often entangled with both power and patriarchy, such that they exploit and benefit from the existing structures in our societies. Traditionally, religion and faith serve as a coping mechanism that helps people submit to and endure these structures, especially in cases like you mentioned before, where sometimes people might turn to religion in the face of loss or when they are in need of comfort and when they're at their most vulnerable. But religion can often play a central role, not just in maintaining or legitimizing structural inequality, but sometimes also in producing it in the first place. The colonial technique of divide and rule, for example, often picked apart traditional cultures, networks, and brotherhoods by instigating religious differences, capitalizing on that, and increasing conflict and misunderstandings. Piggybacking off of the chaos that then ensued, ideals of religious, racial, or cultural supremacy could easily then be created to worsen civil conflicts and very often was twisted to their advantage. You know, hearing you speak about that brings forth a particular quote that captures this perfectly. And the quote is from the first president of Kenya, Mzee Jomo Kenyatta, and he's quoted to say, when the missionaries arrived, the Africans had the land and the missionaries had the Bible. They taught us how to pray with our eyes closed. When we opened them, they had the land and we had the Bible. So in this sense, Delna, I would say faith-based organizations operate using the same power of religion that was used for occupation and domination to instigate development, which I find to be a striking irony, but also kind of hopeful. However, for nations and societies that were once occupied through faith and religion, and those that fought wars and survived or are still living through wars and religious conflicts, what is social justice for them? Is it enough to offer salvation from the same tool that was used to dismantle their way of being? Or if I put it this way, can they derive comfort from the same sword that was used to cut their skins open just a few years ago? Wow, I think, Salma, that is such a crucial question to take away from this conversation. I think it's also such a crucial benchmark to keep coming back to at various stages within the development sector as well, when we reflect and critically think about our own positionalities. But just for the sake of taking this conversation forward and to play the devil's advocate, when I try to think of complex but interestingly positive examples of how power can shift hands very quickly and in unexpected ways, um, I think of the example of Egypt before the Arab Spring. Many young people faced economic and political exclusion at a certain moment because for the number of skilled young people graduating from good universities, there simply weren't enough jobs. 
Many of them at that point turned to religion looking for comfort from the disappointment that they faced. But interestingly enough, instead of being forced to conform to the systems that were in place, these youngsters actually turned towards political activism and rallied for liberation, social justice and democracy. And I, of course, don't need to elaborate on how large their impact was because it practically triggered an entire Arab Spring leading to the establishment of secular democracies across various countries within the Middle East. This, of course, did come with its own challenges and complexities that eventually had to be dealt with. But I always think it's such an interesting example of how economics triggered a rise of conservative religious groups in the Middle East and how they used the power that religion holds to create radical social change to their advantage. The circle of concerned African women theologians is another interesting example. This is an organization that Professor Mombo is actually part of, and they're quite a good example of how religion can be used to critique and challenge existing structures. The circle reflects on dynamic issues affecting African societies, and it was first established back in 1989 in Accra, Ghana, by Mercy Amba Oduyoye. They sought to be the voice of African Christian women at the grassroots level. Research and publication was and still is one of the major pillars and activities of the circle. And I believe the main objective that they have is to write and publish theological literature written by African women from their own experience of religion and culture within the continent. Now, this is, again, an example of how religion can sometimes be a proactive force for social change. In a, in a way, I guess you could argue that the circle's joint faith and religious ideologies provide them with a common vocabulary to establish a culture of solidarity while opposing the same laws and scriptures that restricted or undermined them. Now, the question of why they had to fight the laws and scriptures that did restrict or undermine their capabilities. Now, that's a whole different other question that we could discuss for ages. These are quite fascinating examples, Delna. I do love the idea of religion being used to critique and challenge existing structures. It does, however, make me question if this isn't close to what is termed as sleeping with the enemy. Because on a personal or, say, feminist viewpoint, I see that organizations such as the Circle are a small exception to the rule, and they are just gaining their share of recognition and acknowledgement. This means we still have a long way to go, mainly because teachings, doctrines, and religious rules have also been instrumental in reducing the role of women to mere decorations or just supportive, obedient followers of men, which clashes with women empowerment and equality. So by this, what I mean to say is that the narrative that can be used to empower women through religion, such as the circus narrative, is the same that can and has been subduing women for centuries. While we are on this subject, it may be interesting to look into the conditionality that comes along with religion and development as well. It's interesting to compare the relationship between religion and inequality. In many religions, leaders hold power over believers in dictating the rights and wrongs of how a certain faith is supposed to be practiced. 
it almost becomes transactional to the point where one is only considered a truly religious person if they practice their faith exactly as prescribed by the leaders or the scriptures or the doctrines. When this is combined with the existing economic and social structures that drive inequality, organized religion can be a reason for the oppressed, oppression, I mean, and domination of the less powerful. Religion can sometimes be used as a coping mechanism in the face of deprivation and could be a major force that helps to maintain the unequal status quo. So then maybe, Delna, the fundamental question here would be how do we separate inequalities and patriarchy from aid and religion? Well, I guess in an ideal scenario, each individual should be able to explore and arrive at their own unique relationship with religion. And this can, of course, be anything between steadfast belief to atheism or anything along the spectrum. But just as long as this relationship is non-intrusive to others. When it comes to aid and religion, though, group dynamics play such a big factor. Faith-based organizations work very often on group decisions and visions rather than individual intent, irrespective of however good that might be. So it's only natural that majoritarian values and conditionalities prevail. Within this context, faith-based aid has the risk of becoming extremely conditional. And this is something that I personally have had a major problem with, for the lack of a better way to put it, over the last few years. For example, if there is an educational program organized to make education more accessible to a certain minority community, there can be expectations for the students to be taught the practices of a certain faith, whether or not they want or are willing to conform to that. I'm sure you can think of a few examples when I say this, right, Selma? That is actually right, Delna. I could think of very many like simple examples where religious or say faith-driven establishments such as schools uh, can bring this phenomena into action. Uh, what could be an interesting example is uh, in Tanzania where we have very prominent religious schools and these clearly state in their name whether they are say Islamic or Christian schools And the students are obliged to dress and act according to the religious beliefs. And usually this comes in a, in a form of very long body-hiding uniforms and even scheduled prayer time in between lessons. And what I personally find most interesting, or I would say striking, is the part that usually the most strict dress codes and rules are addressing the female students. Exactly. There's always a certain type of student who stands at a loss in these scenarios. Not conforming to the teachings of that faith could potentially exclude a child from receiving the education that the faith-based organization offers. For example, a religious doctrine that is strongly opposed to the LGBTQI movement or has specific alignments towards sex or food groups of a certain kind, like pork for Muslims or beef for Hindus, this can eventually be 
very constraining or depriving to a child who is discovering or exploring these parts of themselves and in an ideal scenario should have been able to make the, these decisions according to their own timelines, according to their own intent. Well, I couldn't agree with you more, Delna. And uh, this is the part where my people would call a double-ended sword, which religion ha- appears to be. And, well, it is obvious that this discussion can go both ways and for quite some time. And what is even more obvious is that religion, faith, in whichever form or name, is a strong driver for development, not only because some have created immense empires, power and wealth through it, but also because it goes a step further. It drives intentions and motivations. There is, of course, still an undeniable need for material and financial advancements to overcome barriers that still stand ahead of inequality um, in development. But uh, along with this, intentions behind the this development should be comprehensively created to involve diversity. And what's even more important is that just like faith and beliefs, every person or nation has the right to fully own their development. I mean, to fully and completely own their development. And they should be availed with the freedom and means to do exactly that. I couldn't agree more. I'm... Absolutely, 100% with you, Selma, and thank you so much for phrasing that so perfectly. Unfortunately, this does bring us to the end of our conversation today, because just like any good thing, our time today also must come to an end. So I think it's safe to say thank you very much for tuning in and listening in on our conversation to all of the people who've joined us in today and listened along. We're very happy to have, at the very least, kickstarted this conversation, and we sincerely hope that you take it forward within your own networks and personal introspections. As the feminist theory states, there should be nothing about us without us. And this is true for every individual across the spectrum of faith who has the fundamental right of defining their own relationship with religion, power, and the structures that surround them in their daily lives. At the end of the day, it boils down to each and every one of us to make our own decisions about the spectrum that lies between what is right and what is wrong. So, Salma, would you still like to add a final goodbye as we sign off? Well, yes, I think I could say as a summation, basically, our message to the listeners today is that just as you privately and actively own your faith and beliefs, you should also own your development in this exact same manner. And most importantly, you should leave space for others to do the same. Thank you all for listening. Do you also have a story to share or are you interested in more content from Disrupt Development? Subscribe to our podcast and visit disruptdevelopment.org.